Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and uh, welcome back uh, to New Books uh, and Economic and Business History, um, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Ghassan Moazin, an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong and uh, one of the hosts um, of the channel. Um, Today, I'm very happy to uh, welcome to the podcast uh, Professor Robert Cliver. Uh, He's a professor of history um, at uh, Cal Poly Humboldt, uh, and uh, we'll be talking about his new book, uh, Red Silk, Class, Gender, and Revolution in China's Yangtze Delta Silk Industry, uh, which came out uh, with the Harvard University Asia Center um, in 2020 and is a wonderful study uh, about the Chinese silk industry in the 20th century with a particular focus um, on the 1950s. Uh, So, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, as always, Rob, I wonder whether we can uh, start by um, you just talking a bit about how you came to write the book and uh, choose the topic and then write write the book uh, and how it came to the form that it is now. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so just a little bit of background about myself and where I'm coming from. I grew up in Reagan's America, and that made me a Marxist. And uh, since the 1980s, I've been very interested in socialism and the labor movement and unions and people organizing to defend their interests. And when I went to college, I was interested both in uh, Chinese civilization and language and also socialist politics. So I studied Chinese and I studied history and I went to China in 1989 and really got hooked on the topic. So by the time I went to Harvard to study for my dissertation in 1999, I knew I wanted to write a labor history. I wanted to write about industrial workers under socialism. And the main questions that I came into this with are, what difference did it make that the Chinese Communist Party is Marxists? What difference did communist rule make for industrial workers in an industrializing country? And I've studied Russian history as well, Soviet history, Chinese history, and Japan. And uh, sort of the, the global history of labor and uh, industrialization 
So I wanted to do a case study for my dissertation, and I thought about the uh, uh, the Yanjing uh, or uh, Qingdao breweries and the uh, Chinese beer industry, which has an imperialist legacy to it. And I thought about cotton textiles. But ultimately, I hit on the silk industry and wrote my, my dissertation about the, uh, the Chinese silk industry in the Yangtze Delta in the, mostly in the 1950s, looking at the, what the consequences of the communist seizure of power and the Communist Party's policies for workers were for this industry and this group of workers. And the reason that the silk industry is so interesting is that one of the axes of comparison, one of the divisions among silk workers is gender. The silk filatures that produce thread from cocoons mostly employ 90% of the workers are young women. Whereas in the silk weaving industry, using electric-powered looms, uh, it's a high-end product, an important export product, uh, and it mostly employed adult men, uh, often from the Yangtze Delta towns around Shanghai. But Shanghai in the 1940s and 50s was a major center for silk weaving. And the results are, are quite fascinating, I think. That's how I got into the topic, was looking for a case study of a group of workers that had internal differences in terms of gender, uh, background, geography, uh, and so forth, uh, to see what different effects Communist Party policies for workers were like in, in this one industry facing similar market and policy conditions, but with very different groups of workers. And the conclusion is basically that there was there were many different revolutions. Depending on who you were and where you lived and what your status was, the revolution meant very different things to different people. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was that was already going to be my next question. What um, what sort of the main main finding is, and I think you um, um, uh, put that together. Um, uh, brought that together just now quite nicely. Yeah, but if you want to talk a bit more about that. Um, I can be more specific. specific. Yes, please. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, uh, you know, there's there's an obvious distinction. Um, male, uh, well-connected male silk weavers in Shanghai are sort of the paradigmatic proletarian heroes. Uh, they made out great from the revolution. They got all the things that the labor movement had been demanding for decades. They had close ties to the Communist Party, uh, and that helped them a lot. They had all of the resources, both in terms of political personnel and union personnel, but also the physical infrastructure to provide things like um, uh, child care facilities and health clinics, uh, tickets to the movies, all of the benefits that socialism is so famous for. And for women in the silk filatures outside of Shanghai, women working in the silk filatures in Shanghai benefited along with their male counterparts. So it's not a strict gender binary. But in a city like Wuxi, which is the other main place that I study, uh, for Two or three years after 1949, it was like there was no revolution. It happened to other people. The women in these factories saw really no difference in their lives at all, including in the few silk filatures that were taken over by the new government and operated as state-run enterprises. Even in those factories, some horrific practices from the old days continued into the 1950s, including physical beatings of workers on the job. And in August of 1952, 
a young woman named Shengen Di was beaten to death by her supervisor. And this produced uh, an uprising, really, the kind of thing that happened a lot in the 1930s uh, when one of their number was abused or workers were laid off or something like that. <clears throat> These workers generally eschewed unions and, uh, and didn't organize formally, but they had extensive uh, informal networks and a strike could be organized in 24 hours and all of the Filichers workers would go out on strike and go to the other factories. With Shen's death, the communist authorities managed to avoid this by dealing with the problem immediately. And this, uh, I'm sorry, it's in 1951. In the autumn of 1951, the party launched the Democratic Reform Campaign which is not very much studied. It was a campaign to purge the unions of uh, criminal elements and uh, Guomindang loyalists and basically any independent union organizers who weren't communists uh, were purged in this effort. Uh, and that in some ways would have benefited these workers greatly uh, because the, the male supervisors who were the ones doing the abuse and the beatings had managed to dominate the unions established in 1949. They were the, the power, uh, the authorities in the factories, and there was little workers could do to overcome that you know, even after the communist takeover. Uh, so it wasn't until 1951-52 that these workers really started to see any changes at all in their circumstances. Uh, whereas by, by this time, by 1952, their counterparts in Shanghai are enjoying welfare benefits and health insurance and all kinds of other benefits of the socialist system. Uh, so the outcomes for these two groups of workers, even though they work in related industries and they face the same market conditions and uh, policy conditions, the outcomes of policy uh, implementation were very different. And I think it has a lot to do with, uh, with patriarchy. That's the main theory at work here is that uh, the, most of the Chinese communist leaders who were sent into Wuxi to manage the transition in the silk villagers. And the same story plays out in other similar cities in the Yangtze Delta. Uh, they just didn't, they, they, uh, the way I see it is that they viewed gender as something that happens in the home. Gender is men and women, families, husbands and wives. Gender doesn't really have any place in the workplace. That's where class happens. So it's proletarians and bourgeoisie in that case. But of course, in the filatures, it's much more complicated than that. And in fact, one of the, uh, the aspects of power in the silk factories is gender. The fact that you have grown men with authority over young women and the women have almost no power at all under the circumstances. And that didn't change very much under communist rule. Yeah, no, no, that's um, that's fascinating. I, I mean, several things there, but I think, um, and we'll talk a bit more about that, but certainly, you know, going that there's actually not that much change over the 49 divide. I thought that was fascinating. Um, but uh, also, of course, that you bring in gender. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on, um, on the labor history of the PRC, but I think in the introduction, you kind of um, make this point quite forcefully that, yes, we, we normally talk about class quite a lot, but then the intersection with gender, I think, um, is something rather new that is not really talked um, about enough. So, and, and you just did already, but I wonder whether you can uh, talk a bit more about how you um, yeah, sort of chose these particular two analytical lenses, like class on the one hand side, but also gender on the other then. Right. Um, so actually, I have my classmates at Harvard to thank for this. 
Uh, I started off doing a kind of uh, Marxist class relations study of silk workers in the revolution and um, was focusing more on relations between labor and management. And the fact that these groups of workers were divided by gender seemed incidental to me at the time. And it was when I, very early on, uh, after a research trip to China during the semester I was back, there's the, the graduate students at Harvard are all very supportive and, uh, you know, unlike you, you hear in the movies, uh, that kind of thing, um, the climate there was actually very helpful and, and collegial. And um, one of the responses to my when I introduced my research was, well, you know, gender isn't incidental to this story. It's central. Uh, and you should really look at things that way. So I didn't set out to be a gender historian or a women's historian, but it turned out that that was the most important aspect uh, of explaining the different outcomes in this interest in this industry. Uh, and it, like I said, it's not cut and dried. You know, there's women workers in Shanghai who benefit along with their male counterparts. So geography is another uh, axis of analysis. Um, the difference between Shanghai and Wuxi, for example. Um, but uh, I, I'm also very interested in class, of course. I am a labor historian, and gender is, is important, especially where it intersects with class and with political power and, uh, and other aspects of the Chinese revolution. But uh, I do also write quite a bit uh, and, and plan to do more about the, uh, the silk factory owners themselves. Uh, and there's a lot about them and how they're navigating the, this rapidly changing situation in terms of the markets, lines of credit, uh, supplies and, and uh, uh, purchasers for their products and a new relationship with the state, which it turns out wasn't all that new. Actually, all the stuff the communists co were doing that they called socialism, the nationalists were doing that before in the 1930s and 40s. The communists just gave it a different name. Um, but the, uh, the main thing about the silk industry, by 1949, it was in a terrible state. And by 1950, it looked like it was just going to die. And uh, with the, it was pretty amazing to see the labor capital cooperation, uh, especially in the silk weaving industry, uh, help this industry get back on its feet. And by 1957, it had recovered to pre-war levels and was kind of uh, running along. And then it all got socialized and the Great Leap Forward came along. And that's kind of where my story ends. The Great Leap Forward ruined sericulture and the silk industry and, and really shows the failures of both the market and the planning system, that none of this served the silk industry uh, and its, its employers or workers very well. But, um, you know, one of the interesting things about it, and, and people often don't realize this, that the, the Chinese Communist Party didn't socialize all industry in 1949. It took several years for that to happen. And there were a lot of arguments about what the process should be like. So there's a wealth of materials from these factory owners uh, giving their opinions on things like the state purchasing system, the Jiagong Dinghua uh, system of state supplied raw materials and purchases uh, that uh, is quite illuminating. Uh, and they're often remarkably honest about what they think of this system and its problems and what works for them and what doesn't. There's even a great comment uh, after the Korean War, 
the state silk company had to cut back its purchases a lot. Uh, Soviet markets and Eastern European markets were glutted with Chinese silk already. Uh, And so in response to market demand, the state company had to curtail purchases of Chinese silk. So one irate factory owner uh, writes an angry letter to the state silk company. He didn't sign it. It's anonymous. But he says, you know, you told us that our markets were chaotic and you're going to bring order to the chaotic capitalist system. Turns out you guys are pretty chaotic too, huh? And it's it's that kind of uh, really honest uh, criticism that comes across in a lot of these sources. Uh, and there's some of that from the workers' side too. Um, it's often reported secondhand. It's not you know, a direct source from the workers. It's usually the unions reporting on or summarizing what the workers' sentiments are. Uh, but it's also often very critical uh, of the party's policies and what's not working for them and, and uh, you know, what the party has failed to do for them. Uh, so it's interesting how class conflict is handled in this situation. And even more interesting to me is the class cooperation that is achieved under these dire circumstances under Communist Party leadership. And I think one dynamic that's often left out and was difficult to get into, given the sources I had, is conflict between these folks in society, proletarians and bourgeoisie, and the party state. And there's always conflict there. Uh, it's very rare, I think, to see you know, even the privileged silk weavers in Shanghai are not always unambiguously enthusiastic about the party's policies. Uh, and so the party's effort to become the vanguard of the proletariat, to become the class, uh, the, 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 the party that's representing the working class, I think often falls short because they're not really a proletarian vanguard party like the Bolsheviks. They're also the peasant party. They're also the party of new democracy that is uh, trying to represent the patriotic national bourgeoisie. In many ways, they're more like the nationalist party than they are like the Bolsheviks, uh, in that their goal is to create a strong, unified China that can defend itself and protect its interests. And in that, I think in the long term, they they succeeded. But then this gets back to the original question of, well, what difference does it make that they're Marxists? And I think it is important. It's not negligible, uh, the advances that workers achieved under, uh, under communist rule, but it's important to remember that that wasn't all workers. Uh, the very most privileged workers in state-run industry, especially heavy industry, won great benefits, even if standards of living were still low. But there were lots of other uh, workers, particularly in service industries, in constructions and mines, um, and in the silk reeling industry, uh, to say nothing of the vast collective uh, industry. Handicrafts was all collectivized. And these other areas employ more women than men. So the, the whole, <clears throat> the benefits of the socialist system are heavily skewed by gender. Uh, and statistically, male workers were better off than female workers. Um, and there's more I could say on that, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Sure, and, then, uh, and we'll get to that. But I thought um, to dig into the book now, actually, um, and, and to, in, into the chapters, um, I was wondering whether, because what you do in the first two chapters um, is basically give give an overview of how things were in Shanghai and Uxi, so in 1949, before the communists take over, uh, and also what the labor movement, the labor organization 
before 1949 uh, looked like there. And I wonder whether you can talk a bit about that. I mean, you mentioned the nationalists already and that there actually wasn't that much of a difference um, in the transition. But uh, what what did things basically look like uh, on the eve of the communist revolution uh, in these two places? Yeah, so the the first two chapters cover first uh, the the silk industry historically before 1949, and then uh, the second chapter it focuses on the workers and the labor movement during the same period to provide this background. And I'm I, I'm happy with the way these these chapters uh, turned out. Um, much of it is based on uh, primary historical research in archives uh, that specifically relates to the silk industry, but a lot of it is also drawing on uh, you know seventy years of work by political scientists and sociologists and economists and historians uh, looking at these questions in the Chinese context. So the, the footnotes and bibliography, I hope, will be very useful to new researchers and will remind them of, uh, you know, all of these great scholars who were writing in the 60s and 70s and, and even later, um, especially people like Elizabeth Perry, for example, she features very prominently, uh, and Emily Honig and Gail Hershatter uh, and other labor historians of this era feature very prominently. But before 1949, of course, one of the big turning points in the fortunes of the, the Republic of China was the Japanese invasion. And occupation after 1937, there's this terrible eight-year war that leaves the nation and the economy in ruins, and that's very important. And just as Japanese historians often identify this this trans-war set of institutions that develop in the 1930s, they're in place during wartime, and many of them survive into the 1950s and 60s and become part of that quintessential Japanese industrial system that we know today. And there's something similar happening in China. So not only continuities between the nationalists and the communists and their their policies, but even with the Japanese occupation. And in, for, in fact, the first state silk company to attempt to achieve a monopoly over silk products was the Japanese occupation Central China Silk Company or Sericulture Company. Uh, and it didn't work very well. Uh, it didn't really achieve its purpose, which was to exploit China's silk industry for Japan's benefit. Uh, but it was a start. And the nationalists took over that institution when they came returned to power in 1945. And then four years later, in 1949, the communists kept the same institution. They renamed it again. And uh, by the mid-50s, it was called the China Sericulture Company, uh, China Silk Company, rather. Uh, but uh, it's basically the same kind of institution, uh, rewritten and under new management. But as is the case with a lot of nationalist uh, institutions that carry over, the same personnel are in place too. The same guys are running the thing as did it for the Guomindang, and just now they're doing it for the Gongchandang, the Communist Party. Uh, and that kind of brings me up to uh, the period of new democracy in Chapter 3. Uh, and this is a concept that I take seriously. Uh, I don't think new democracy was just uh, a sleight of hand to get the capitalists to lower their guard so the communists could take over. Uh, from everything that I understand, the communist leadership genuinely believed that they needed to cooperate with China's bourgeoisie, at least people who were willing to work with them, uh, in order to get the economy back on its feet. 
because by 1949, especially with inflation, uh, but also transportation infrastructure was damaged. Uh, markets were extremely unreliable. Market institutions had basically collapsed for many goods. Uh, there was widespread speculation and hoarding and simply shortages of goods. Uh, so the, the efforts of the Communist Party in its first years were economic recovery. We have to get the economy going again, because if we have millions of workers unemployed, we're not going to be in power for very long. Uh, so uh, that was their main goal. And so I think they took new democracy seriously, but I also think that it didn't work. Uh, it wasn't possible to have state leadership or economic planning by government fiat when you still had these very chaotic markets. Which by the you know by the 1950s, business people in China had all kinds of devices and dodges and scams and ways they could survive uh, to get the goods they needed to produce, to get lines of credit, uh, to find customers, um, to avoid paying taxes and fees, uh, to avoid taking inflationary currency as payment. Uh, they had all kinds of mechanisms for doing this, none of which were what the Communist Party wanted them to do. Uh, so then you had the, the five antis. And that's sort of the beginning of the end of, uh, of the new democratic period. And for the workers' part, they find new democracy is better than what they had before in that the government supports them in the organizing and at least in some of their demands on employers. But at the same time, workers are forced to accept low pay with the goal of recovering employment and production in, uh, especially in industries like the silk industry, where, um, you know, the, the markets are shrinking, there's more competition, uh, China has lost access to a lot of international markets at that point, although China still continues to export goods through Hong Kong. Uh, and also through the Soviet Union, it's not like it was before. Uh, so the, the government is really very helpful for the, the silk industry in this situation. But the silk industry also becomes very dependent on the state silk companies. And workers are in a much more powerful position than they've been ever before, really, with the state firmly supporting them. Uh, but again, there's differences according to gender. So the male silk weavers in Shanghai are able to negotiate with their employers. They're able to come to compromises. They establish uh, democratic management institutions. Um, they establish democratic management institutions to deal with things like uh, reducing employment and production while still protecting workers' livelihoods. Uh, and it works very well. It's actually of all the examples of labor capital consultation or democratic management I've come across, it's one of the most successful. In the Wuxi silk filatures, that never happened. The supervisors took over the unions and agreed to a pay decrease, uh, which the workers you know, seemed like they accepted, but they were never really asked about it. It's not a democratic process at all. And these, these female workers are not really being included in that process. And it's not until much later in 1952, 1951-52, uh, that, um, that those workers are able to redress some of these issues. So new democracy kind of cuts both ways for workers. On the one hand, it gives them more power and more of a voice through their unions. But on the other hand, they are prohibited from engaging in class conflict. 
Uh, they're not allowed to, to you know, overthrow their employers and take over the factories themselves. That's prohibited. As much as some of them might have wanted to do that, and there's some sources that indicate that. One of the um, one of the things that happens during the Five Antis campaign in 1952, when the factory managers are are just absent um, and being harassed on a daily basis, is the workers realize they don't need them. They can run the factory just fine without management. It's kind of how I feel about my university. <laughs> but it's a, it's a lesson that grows out of the revolution. Um, so then chapters four uh, and six respectively treat the, uh, the silk weavers in Shanghai and the filature workers in Wuxi uh, sort of on their own and, and cover the same period of time, while chapter five focuses on uh, mass mobilization and uh, mostly organizing around the Korean War and efforts to support the war effort uh, by donating profits and donating wages and factories can, you know, donate so much money to buy a Soviet uh, fighter jet or a bomber or a tank or artillery piece or something like that. And then it goes on from there with all of the social reform movements of the, the three antis and five antis, the democratic reform movement uh, and so on. And then uh, the, the final chapter, chapter seven, uh, is the socialization of the silk industry. And that's quite an involved process that is, is somewhat counterintuitive. The way it's always presented is basically um, Chairman Mao wanted this to happen, so he forced it and it happened. And we don't really look into the consequences very much, except assuming that everything was brought under state planning and management. Uh, The reality, as usual, is much more complicated and fraught, however. Um, And in the the silk reeling industry was taken over by the state much earlier. It's more of a producer good industry. Raw silk is a raw material for making silk cloth. It's also an export product. Silk filagers are much larger. Uh, They already had a closer relationship with the nationalist government before liberation. Uh, And so that that process, um, while still fraught with difficulties, was much easier than socializing or nationalizing Shanghai's some 300 little silk weaving workshops that were scattered across the city, uh, mainly concentrated in a couple of districts like Zhuhai, for example. Um, But still, it it was a much more daunting task. And it's difficult to pin down with evidence. But the impression I have, especially from evidence from the factory owner's side, is that the factory owners were much more enthusiastic about getting taken over by the state then was the local government of Shanghai that just had other problems to deal with and did not want to take on reorganizing the silk industry. So one thing that's really interesting is there's these these plans are being drafted early on in 1953, uh, you know, two or three years before the industry was actually socialized. Uh, on the one hand, you have the, the government drafting these plans for reorganization, how they're going to merge factories and they're going to build new structures and they're going to renovate and modernize and stuff like that. Uh, and then you also have all these petitions from silk factory owners requesting to join with the state and requesting to merge with the, the state company. And, and I think it's easy to understand why. They're seeing which way the winds are blowing, 
and they want to get on board this socialism thing uh, on the ground floor while they can and look good. And the other thing is that things are really unviable. The silk industry is in a terrible situation. Costs are high. Profits are low. The workers are ungovernable. Uh, and I think a lot of factory owners felt, and in fact, they say as much in their petitions, that things would be much better if the state came in and took over. So, of course, it all happens very suddenly at the stroke of a pen in December 1955. The entire silk weaving industry of Shanghai is socialized. Everybody signs their name. They get it over with. And, uh, you know, a year later, nothing much has changed. Uh, there's government bureaucrats running the silk industry, but the the old management is all still there and getting increasingly frustrated with their government partners. Uh, the workers were led to believe that everything would be great after socialization and they get clean workshops and dormitories and child care and medical care and all this stuff. And it doesn't really happen. Uh, and, and that's I think the reason why is because it was simply too big a task. Uh, the government is short-staffed. They don't really have a lot of competent people to run things. Uh, and the, the idea that they can just fix everything at the stroke of a pen was absurd. Uh, so by 1957, uh, in the spring, you get this uh, blooming and contending among the intellectuals. You also get a lot of complaining and even strikes from workers in Shanghai. And this is very difficult to study. Uh, and I think I would say it's impossible to study today because of the restrictions on uh, access to archives in the People's Republic of China. But, you know, historians will always find a way. We'll dig the secrets out somehow. But, um, you know, what happens in 1957 in the silk industry isn't entirely clear. Uh, but what is clear is that it was not what anybody expected. None of those plans were ever implemented. In fact, when I was uh, trying to photocopy them in the Shanghai archives, these documents are labeled top secret. And so they wouldn't let me photocopy them. But I pointed out these were top secret in 1953 and were never implemented. And nobody cares about this anymore. And once the, the party cadre in charge actually read the document, she said, oh, yeah, this stuff is worthless. Why would anyone be interested in it and let me have it? Uh, because it really was, it, it had no consequences. Those plans were never implemented. Uh, but then, of course, with the Great Leap Forward, by 1959, Chinese farmers aren't raising silkworms anymore. Uh, and so the raw material supplies for the silk industry dries up and uh, employment is cut by about half. Uh, and it's, it's pretty devastating. In the 60s, there's lots of cases of silk workers trying to return to the cities, uh, having been laid off in 1959, 1960. And one of the saddest moments in all of this is in, I think it's 1960 or 61, there's a document from the state sericulture company, the state silk company. Uh, and the document is appealing to the planners, the people who control prices in the economy. And they're pointing out that silk farmers are selling their mulberry leaves and twigs to the pharmaceuticals company because they can make more money from that than they can from raising silkworms and selling those. So they're basically saying, can you pay the silk farmers more for cocoons to encourage them to make cocoons because the silk industry is dying? And they didn't. And it's, it's a great example to me of how um, this was not a market economy, although there were markets that operated, they weren't very reliable, they weren't very stable institutions. Uh, but it also wasn't a planned economy. The planning was a fiction. 
They didn't use price controls effectively to achieve economic ends. Uh, and the results were disastrous. And in fact, it, it functioned very much like a dysfunctional market economy. In some ways, you can see the Great Leap Forward as a terrible crash. Um, this one author writing many years ago uh, called it the, um, the collapse of the marginal utility of capital is what happens in the Great Leap Forward. The, the, the government has overinvested in heavy industry and construction beyond the point that it's needed. Uh, and and they're, you know, they do have kind of a planning system, but they're not using it very effectively. Uh, and the result is disaster for the silk industry and its workers and the former factory owners and the, the bureaucrats involved in it too. Everyone suffers. And China's silk industry doesn't really recover until the 1980s with the restoration of export markets. Sure, no, no, and uh, yeah, I'll, I will, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but um, there's sort of two strengths that I wanted to, um, uh, well, first of all, probably, um, I wanted to ask again about, um, because as you say, I think the normal picture that people have is sort of 1949 comes in and all these private entrepreneurs either have to turn over their factories immediately, they flee to Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and so on, And but of course many did stay, and uh, as you, I think, show quite uh, clearly that it's only until, you know, way until 1955, 56, that um, we really have, have a change there before that private enterprise was uh, um, alive and well. So um, I wonder, well, I'm not sure alive and well, but at yeah, least alive, you know, it, maybe not it, well. Yeah, it wasn't healthy, well, we can, but it was can, alive. <laughs> It was certainly not like an overnight change from uh, sort of a, 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 a you know the private enterprise kind of disappears um, all of a sudden. Um, but I I wonder whether you can talk a bit more about um, sort of the process. So what happens to these factory owners once the communists take over? Right in 1949, and I think then you also mentioned that uh, sort of mass mobilization helps the party kind of get more of a grip of these uh, private enterprises already during the Korean War. Um, of course, the, uh, you know, the process sort of comes to an end in 1955-56, but I, yeah, I wonder whether you can talk a bit about like what happens right in 1949 or does anything happen at all? Uh, you know, is there any change much? Or, and then how does the, the, the party then slowly kind of try to um, uh, get a grip on, on these private enterprises? Yeah, so um, uh, one thing about the silk industry is that it is important. It's an important foreign exchange earner. Uh, for China, and always has been. Um, but it's not a top priority the way, say, energy and steel and infrastructure and, and things like that, railroads are. Uh, so it's kind of in the middle in terms of the Communist Party's priorities. And one of the, the first things that happens, even before the Communist Party's forces arrive in the Yangtze Delta, is that uh, the, the factory owners... Um, who in the silk industry, there's, these aren't big bosses. They're pretty middle class. Um, you, you know, maybe they have 12 looms and they employ 30 people. Uh, and that's the size of their workshop. Some of the, some of the larger companies employ a thousand people, but that's the biggest ones. And, um, when the, uh, one of the first things that happen is that they learn to speak communist, they start using the language of class conflict. They read a little Marx um, and, and they've read the Communist Party's own pronouncements and they echo that language in their appeals to the, the revolutionaries, the new government, uh, for raw materials and credit and fuel. Uh, 
the fillagers need coal, they need cocoons, um, uh, and they need credit. They need money to make these purchases, and inflation is out of control. Uh, and they they phrase their appeals in terms of protecting the people's livelihood, uh, establishing labor capital cooperation, uh, serving the people and the nation, uh, and stuff like this. And it's it's obvious what they're doing, but it's remarkable to me how adaptable they are. Uh, and they've done this already. They did it with the Japanese. They did it again with the nationalists. Now they're doing it with the communists. These are seasoned veterans of, of China's mid-20th century wars. Uh, so what happens right away is uh, the communists are very impressive in their handling of the economy. Uh, inflation does continue into 1950. Uh, and then there's a recession in the spring of 1950, when they've got inflation under control, and that causes kind of a collapse in some industries as market demand slows up. And one problem is that the prices for raw materials fall faster than the uh, or fall slower than the prices for finished products. So nobody's buying silk. Um, and the but silk thread is expensive. And so is electricity. Even worse, in February of 1950, the nationalists bombed Shanghai's main power plant. So the power was shut off and you can't run the looms without electric power. Uh, and it seemed like the, the industry was going to die. And that's when the party's policies of, of new democratic labor capital cooperation uh, come into effect and are really useful. Um, they work out compromises. And one of the reasons why I think this is particularly successful in the case of the Shanghai silk industry, and there's a number of reasons, but one of them is that these men are all from the same culture. They're all men from northern Zhejiang, southern Jiangsu towns, uh, silk towns who have moved to Shanghai for work or to start businesses. They speak the same language. They share in this culture of silk weaving masculinity. That means they can communicate with each other. Nothing like this happens in the filature industry. The factory owners are not talking to their women employees and setting up factory councils with them. None of that happens, despite the fact that the government is pushing this. And by law, all enterprises of a certain size are supposed to establish factory councils. It doesn't happen in the filature industry, again, because of patriarchy. Uh, so there's limits to the government's power and how far the government can push people to conform to these new standards that they're calling new democracy. But of course, in, in business, it's all about the bottom line. Can we make this a profitable enterprise? And one of the things that really turns that around for the silk industry by the autumn of 1950 and, and definitely into 1951, silk exports are booming again. And the stake silk company is buying up as much inventory as the factories have, and they're exporting it either to the Soviet Union or to the uh, other socialist comradely countries or through, uh, uh, through Hong Kong to the rest of the world through um, often through, uh, I think there's um, trading companies in Hong Kong that are owned by communists. Uh, and they're they're working for the government in Beijing and selling Chinese goods, uh, mostly in an attempt to get around the embargo. That it, the Chincom embargo was very comprehensive, uh, much more so than the embargo in the Soviet Union. And uh, th but the Chinese government and entrepreneurs found ways around this and and managed to uh, to find markets around the world 
Another interesting thing that happens, though, you can kind of trace the fortunes of Chinese silk exports according to United States foreign policy. So China is exporting silk to Iran in 1951 and 1952. And then it all ends in 1953 and Iran stops importing silk from the People's Republic of China because the government was overthrown and the Shah had put in power. Same thing with Guatemala in 1956. Uh, Guatemala stops importing Chinese silk. Uh, so yeah, the free market people seem to be really intent on closing off markets to the Chinese silk exporters. Uh, but for it's rocky, you know, in those years when the Korean war ends, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a glutted market and the state company can't purchase any more cloth from, from silk weaving companies and has to say, well, you'll have to just, you know, sell it on the market like capitalists do. Um, but of course, by that time, markets for silk domestically had pretty much disappeared. Uh, Chinese people weren't buying silk anymore. That's bourgeois cloth. Uh, proletarian people were cotton. <laughs> uh, so there's some, you know, there's markets for green checkered crepe in Xinjiang that they're trying to exploit. But it's pretty rocky in the, the mid-1950s. And I think that's one of several reasons why silk factory owners find the idea of the state takeover very appealing. I don't have to keep struggling to try to make a profit in very difficult markets and difficult circumstances. I can just become an administrator, an employee of the state company, and then, you know, I'll just do my job and the the government can worry about finding markets. And so I think that that's part of the attitude. Um, But but it's interesting to me how willing many of these uh, factory owners, these capitalists are, to cooperate with the Communist Party. Of course, they didn't know what was going to come in the future. They didn't know that the Five Antis was coming or the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Feng Xiaotai has a really great article in English about um, the, the fate of capitalists and how they're really never allowed to stop being capitalists throughout the 60s and 70s. They don't own factories anymore. They're not motivated by profit. Um, but they're still trotted out as reformed capitalists for foreign visitors and things like that. Rong Yiren is a great example of the so-called red capitalists. Uh, so the relationship is very interesting and, and complex, and, and there's a lot of diversity, too. One of my informants, um, I, I interviewed some factory owners and uh, managers and some workers as well, but proletarians tend not to live as long as capitalists, so uh, I got more interviews with with rich people. But um, Mr. Lowe, Lowe R. Pin, uh, was the owner of the Yunlin factory. His family owned it, and he and his brothers operated And I interviewed him and his brother back in uh, 2003, I think it was. And um, uh, he had a very contentious relationship with the the government. He's a very independent-minded person and didn't want to um, uh, knuckle under. Uh, He certainly didn't want to admit to committing any crimes that he hadn't committed. So he resisted and he suffered for it. And uh, but he shows up in the document. So. For example, in December 1955, when the silk industry is all socialized at one stroke, Mr. Lowe is mentioned in the press release as the statement is something like, even Mr. Lowe, who's been a holdout all these years, is excited about socialization. And the way he put it was, let's just get it over with or something like that. So there's there's different attitudes. And 
I think it's very common, right? There's in China in the mid 20th century, it's a very chaotic and difficult situation. And everybody's trying to figure out what's the best way to survive. And people come to different conclusions about that based, I think, more than anything on their personalities. But there's really no accounting for that as historians. So uh, unless we resort to biography. But uh, yeah, I think I think ultimately whatever one's attitude toward the state was as a, a former factory owner, by the end of the decade, everyone is pretty disappointed in the way things have turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the sort of the different, the sort of variety as to how different well, quote unquote capitalists kind of dealt with the, uh, with the new regime, I think that comes out. Um, it's one of the many very interesting facets of the book. Um, before we move to kind of the, uh, you know, Great Leap and then into the sort of in the, in your last chapter into the 1980s, I want to, because the sixth chapter kind of very much goes to the Silk Villagers in Wuxi. And so uh, you already mentioned this, like uh, this horrific incident with uh, Shen Gandhi, which sort of starts off the book, actually. Um, so I wonder, like, yeah, what changes after that in, in Wuxi? And uh, I mean, is there any kind of, like, at least after that, any kind of, do the female uh, workers get more of a voice after that? Or is there any change or not really? A little bit, but not as much as you'd hope. You know, again, considering, okay, the, these are Marxists, they're communists, internationalists. What difference does it make that they're in charge? And and they make all the same decisions that the Nationalist Party would do. Maybe it's a little bit better off for the workers. They're pushing things like um, health insurance and health care, child care for working class people and things like this. But more than anything, what the government wants from workers, including women workers, is they want them to work harder for lower pay, which is what capitalists want, right? So what difference does it make? I guess the, the difference that the communists are always pushing for the workers is that you're not working for a private individual's profit. You're working to improve the nation and develop the future. And the people I talked to of that generation, people who were young in the 1950s uh, and, and worked in silk factories at the time, um, their attitude is very different. They're, they really have this ethos of serving the people. Uh, and you see this today, you know, the, the old guy picking up around the apartment buildings, picking up litter. He's not doing it because it's his job. He's doing it because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and it's good for the neighborhood. Whereas the younger people think that's just stupid. You just you look out for number one and your family and that's it. But the people of that generation, they believed that they were working for a better future. And that meant they put up with an awful lot of disappointment and hardship. Uh, and later in life, they were proud of it. And my informants, they're very proud of, of how hard they worked back in the day. Uh, but if you look at the documents from the time, uh, there's a lot of problems, a lot of conflict. So, for example, in August of 1951, Shen Gandhi is, is beaten to death at work by her, uh, her supervisor, a man, an older man. And um, I forget his name. It's in the book. But um, and that launches this democratic reform. And there's public trials that I go into in some detail. There's great records of these events in the uh, Wusi Municipal Archives from the unions. And there's there's struggle sessions and these these women recount 
the suffering that they've had at the hands of these supervisors and um, recount how hard it was under the old society. But the whole thing is geared mainly toward giving the Communist Party more access to and more control over these women workers, which they never had before. There aren't any Communist Party cadres among them. They didn't even have union organizations before 1949. Um, those always failed for them in the 20s, so they, they preferred other tactics. Um, so the results of the democratic reform movement in the fall of 1951 are disappointing uh, for the workers. And it all just turn, kind of turns into uh, registering for health insurance and clarifying your, your family history and background. Uh, and one of the things they do is root out the last of the Iguandao, uh, a religious movement. Um, that was popular in the 30s and 40s. And um, they root out the last remnants of that through these uh, revisions. And they replace the male supervisors who dominated the unions with women activists who had identified themselves during the, the movement. But those women are chosen more than anything for their uh, enthusiasm for the Communist Party and not so much for how representative they are of their their co-workers' interests. Um, so it's not that things don't change, especially in 1952, during the Five Antis campaign, what happens in the Filichers is uh, they're shut down in the spring, which is kind of an off-season for them before the spring cocoons have been harvested. Uh, and they refurbish the, the factories, they put in air conditioning equipment, temperature controls, because it got very hot in the factories, and that was one thing. Uh, it's also very humid, they put in ventilation and stuff like that for the steam. Um, and uh, there was a literacy campaign. Uh, lots of young women learned to read uh, in the, the spring of 1952, and uh, one or two even went on to uh, People's University in Beijing to get a college education. So there definitely were benefits. They expanded the healthcare system and things like that. But a report from 1953 two years after the democratic reform movement uh, mentions that, uh, you know, there's still some problems in the silk industry, including the practice of beating workers, which had not disappeared entirely. And I think that's quite striking that, again, one of the most important demands of these women workers is that they want to be treated like human beings. Uh, they don't want to be beaten and yelled at and abused. Um, they want to be treated with human dignity. Uh, another particularly unpleasant custom in the factories was uh, searching the bodies of workers leaving the factory to make sure they're not stealing anything. That continued under communist administration as well. Uh, so, yeah, again... Um, yeah, and then we move into socialization and factory mergers and things like that. And a lot of the concerns of these workers just fall by the wayside and simply aren't addressed um, until by 1959, half of them are told to go backward to whatever village they came from and try to survive there because there's no employment for them in the silk industry. Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, exactly. And then that's... Uh, um... No, first of all, I think uh, what sort of what does change and what doesn't actually change in um, in Uxi, um even more so than in Shanghai is 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 really something super interesting that comes um, out of the book as as well as you say. Um, so you already mentioned. Well, we've kind of come up uh, towards the Great Leap Forward, I think, uh, a few times now. But I wonder whether. Um, you can sort of talk a bit more about the, the whole crisis of the industry that happens 
um, once we get to the so once we you know we move into socialization uh, um, uh, after uh, 1955 56 and then into the great leap forward like what exactly happens during that time um, to the silk industry in Shanghai and Wuxi basically right so one of the first steps in that direction comes in 1957 uh, within a year or so of socialization uh, there's a movement to get silk weavers to operate more looms simultaneously. Basically, it's an effort to intensify labor. And the workers who want to be designated as labor models or they want to join the party and get out of the working class and become a cadre or something, they're willing to do this and they're they're spearheading this. But most workers are not, not interested. And the government isn't giving them uh, compensatory pay. Uh, you know, so they, they want you to work three looms instead of one, but they'll only increase your wages by 50%. And, you know, these workers can do math just fine. That doesn't make sense to them. You want me to triple my efforts, but only get a 50% increase in pay. Um, and it's it's difficult to do as well, especially for certain types of cloth like velvet or georgette. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible. So on the one hand, there are new techniques coming out. The you know, the idea of soliciting suggestions from the workers as to how to improve efficiency, improve quality and so forth, that, there, that does bear some fruit. Uh, but the goal of intensifying labor in a way that capitalist employers never even attempted to do, uh, it falls short. It fails. Uh, the silk weavers are simply not willing to do that um, until the great leap forward makes it mandatory. If you're patriotic and loyal then you're going to operate three looms. If you don't want to operate three looms, then hmm, maybe there's something suspect about you and you're not politically correct or something like that. And of course, political correctness means something completely different in Shanghai in 1958. So the, the, there's the great speed up, right? This is a big part of the, the great leap forward in industry is we're going to run the machines faster. We're going to achieve higher, uh, faster, better, higher quality uh, products, and we're going to overtake Japan's silk industry in 15 years. Um, And it it gets to be kind of absurd. Uh, So, for example, machines aren't designed to work this fast uh, and parts break down, but they don't have the suppliers giving them new uh, spare parts for their machines. So they have to make them out of wood or porcelain or something. They have to find substitutes that don't work as well. Uh, it's a failure. Um, another, you know, there's also boiler explosions at one factory. Um, the boiler was being run too hard and it was too antiquated and it exploded and killed a worker. Uh, at the same time, workers are, are told not only to uh, work harder at work and to volunteer overtime hours to work more time at the factory, Um, They're also expected to go and dig air raid shelters or grow cotton or grow rice or whatever uh, in their off time. So it's it's these totalitarian aspirations. I don't think the Chinese regime was ever, you know, ever had total control over anything. It's quite chaotic, but they aspire to. They want to, you know, be able to make everybody work harder. You know, if we just work a little bit harder, I forget what's the expression. It's, you know, struggle hard through three passes to achieve the the kingdom. Uh, There's a Chinese uh, idiom for that. But that's what everybody was told at the time. And initially, you see a lot of enthusiasm. 
but that's not enough. You can't make good silk with just enthusiasm. Uh, silk production does improve. The quality of Chinese silk does improve with greater effort, but probably more important to that is they're getting better quality cocoons. Sericulture has recovered by 1957, 58. They're getting better cocoons, um, better materials. Um, they have scientists and engineers working on this stuff. Uh, so some filatures, uh, I think Hua Chang is one of them, in Wuxi produce the, the finest 4A grade silk for the first time since 1937 in, uh, on the eve of the Great Leap Forward. And that's great, but it's not sustained. It's kind of this burst of effort that produces these, this great product, and then it never returns um, because they have to put so much effort into doing that. There's one case of a, um, uh, it's, it's a report by a union cadre, and his goal is really to make it seem like he's very enthusiastic for the Great Leap policy, and it's been very successful. And basically the story is they couldn't do it, they still couldn't do it. They tried even harder, couldn't do it. The engineers and technicians say it simply can't be done. The political leaders say there are no fortresses Bolsheviks cannot storm. We're going to make it happen. And finally, to great success, they produce a few ounces of highest quality silk. And that's it. That's as, you know, that's as far as it goes. So if you throw everything into it, and of course, they're not using... Um, you know, uh, regular financial accounting. They're not measuring the cost that goes into producing this high quality silk against what they can sell it for. There's no, no profit measurement here. Um, it's all po highly politicized and, and it doesn't last. But then, of course, the, the fatal blow is the collapse of sericulture. Uh, by 1959, so many Chinese farmers are starving to death and looking for ways to survive, they're not raising silkworms. If they were raising silkworms, they would probably eat them. Um, and mulberry bark is kind of edible. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they, the, the government, and this is true throughout the Great Leap Forward, the government never used price controls to try to achieve their goals under that, uh, that policy. I mean, the price scissors was in effect that, uh, you know, the prices paid for agricultural goods were very low relative to the industrial goods that the government was selling to the communes. Um, but that, I think, was a, a misguided approach to primitive accumulation for industry. I, um, you know, the, the typical phrase is my, Chairman Mao is always talking about walking on two legs, and it really ends up being walking on no legs uh, because they're not developing industry or agricultural ef effectively. Um but yeah, now I'm starting to drift into uh, more recent books like How China Avoided Shock Therapy, or um, there's another good book, uh, the, the name of which I'm forgetting. Uh, I just read reviews of these. And th this is, of course, a, is more looking at the 1980s. But uh, according to um, How China Escaped Shock Therapy anyway, those debates go back to the 50s and 60s uh, as to just you know what kind of of uh, tools should the Chinese government be using to develop the economy? Uh, and is centralized planning on the Soviet model the only one? Um, or, you know, are just gangbusters free for all markets the only way to do it either? And what they arrive at is some kind of compromise. And I think that uh, uh, Bella's 
uh, conclusions in that book are, are spot on, that the the experiments and conflicts of the 50s and 60s give rise to a rather sophisticated uh, economic theory uh, in the late 70s and 80s um, that doesn't necessarily get implemented very well either. There's politics then too. And uh, Deng Xiaoping seems to kind of go gung-ho for markets, but still the, the Chinese Communist Party retains the commanding heights of the economy, to use Lenin's phrase, and uh, it's worked out fairly well for the country, at least compared to what happened in Russia or Poland or um, the shock therapy that happened in the East. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but as you, uh, you know, um, be- before we sort of uh, um, wrap things up, I think uh, because you do mention, you just mentioned the, the 1980s and you do talk in the book about the sort of comeback of, of the of, of Chinese silk industry and boom, uh, I think we can say uh, in the 1980s. So I wonder whether you can uh, you can sort of bring the story up up to that. Um, well, it's uh, I'm not as familiar with that era. Um, it, it gets uh, the information gets much more complicated, and it gets into uh, a lot more statistics about cost profit ratios and exports and international monetary funds, and um, I kind of lose interest. But um, by 1987, China had once again overtaken Japan as the world's leading producer of silk. One reason being that Japan produced less silk and was actually importing a lot of even silk for fancy kimonos in Japan was being produced in Shanghai uh, by the 1980s and 1990s. But um, I think it has a lot to do with flexibility. Uh, allowing enterprises the flexibility to hire workers on their own terms, uh, to set their own prices for goods on the market, uh, and to you know to acquire raw materials on their own. And you know, there's some really good books on this stuff by friends who are political scientists and economists and political economists um, that show that the kind of free for all economy that came out of the great uh, the uh, Cultural Revolution. By the 1970s, there was no planning system in China. The planners had all been removed from their posts in disgrace, and cadres on the ground were pretty much doing whatever they wanted uh, to get by and survive. And part of that was cooperating with the old capitalists again. Uh, This particularly happened in places like Wenzhou. Uh, and other parts of Zhejiang, where they were primed and ready for market reforms, uh, even by the 1970s. Uh, or, you know, you get a lot of the uh, township and village enterprises developing, uh, where the local cadres decide, hey, let's make bricks. I know a guy in Shanghai who is, is in the state construction company, he'll buy our bricks. Uh, and my cousin can run the factory. And, you know, they start off being these sort of cooperative quasi-state enterprises. And by the 1990s, it's all privatized, usually in a corrupt fashion um, that doesn't necessarily benefit all the people in that village. Uh, But in many cases, it does. And, uh, you know, I think if there's one rule of Chinese economics is that you have to make space for entrepreneurship. Uh, Chinese people have always worked hard to survive and improve their lot. Uh, and if you give them just a little bit of room to do that, they'll they'll do it. They'll accomplish accomplish great things. And you see this a lot of the early uh, kind of big businesses of the 1980s. A lot of the successful new businesses established in the reform era were established by people who lived on the margins of the socialist economy. There were peddlers or you know former capitalists who'd been disgraced and lost their livelihoods, but they had 
this this business acumen. Uh, again, Wenjo is a really interesting place in this regard, in that uh, the the Communist Party cadres in Zhejiang Province knew that they would never get to the central government. They were stuck in the sticks out there. They were stuck with their capitalist neighbors. So those groups got together and colluded to develop their own local interests. And I think that's hugely important and something that Chinese governments have always understood. Uh, that you, uh, on the one hand, you want control, you want stability, you want to have a nation with some kind of unified system. On the other hand, you have to give the localities room to do their own thing because that's that's the the vibrancy um that's the dynamism of the chinese economy and you see that in the silk industry by by the time i was doing my research in the uh first years of the 21st century uh there was only one silk weaving workshop only one silk weaving factory left in shanghai the others had all moved out to uh rural jiangsu and zhejiang uh they'd all it, it was the reverse of the process in the early 20th century of a hundred years earlier, uh, and in fact, uh, the last place was the Maya Number no. Four factory, which, when I visited, was still a state-run factory. Um, in fact, the Communist Party cadres there were extremely helpful in my research uh, and gave me all all kinds of great materials um, and were very helpful. But uh, they told me that the next year they were moving out. They were leaving uh, the Zhuhai district and leaving Shanghai. So as far as I know, there isn't any more silk production in Shanghai. I think it's too expensive there. And of course, they've moved out to the country where they're closer to the sources of raw materials and labor. And it just makes economic sense. Uh, so that's what's happened in the 1980s. And uh, I think they're still going strong uh, from what I can tell. I don't know what global markets for silk are like today, but it's always been a favored product and people around the world love it. No, great, great. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for bringing that out, sort of up, uh, up to date, uh, um, or up to the present, more or less. Um, there, um, just now, um, we've already taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. But I thought, um, um, before before we sort of end, I wonder, um, you know, now that this book is done. Uh, uh, whether there's, uh, yeah, what, what you're working on now, like whether, what's the, what the next project yeah, is. Yeah, uh, certainly. And, uh, it's been, it's been a pleasure talking with you again, uh, Gazan. it's, it's really nice. And, and thank you for inviting me again. But, um, yeah, I do have a couple of other publications on the topic of silk capitalists and silk workers. Uh, there's a couple of other articles based on this material that I want to publish, but in recent years, my, uh, my interests have shifted to American history. And I live in Humboldt County, which was notorious uh, back in 1885 for expelling its Chinese residents. Uh, in 1885, 1886, the cities and towns around here um, drove out all their Chinese residents in a kind of racist pogrom or ethnic cleansing. Uh, and that became the model for similar events up and down the, the Pacific coast of the United States. Uh, so since I live here and I don't really have to travel anywhere and with COVID, it's been difficult to do any research at all. Uh, and given the state of the archives in the PRC, I think it's, it's not really possible for me to do the kind of research I did uh, 15, 16 years ago. 
so I've turned to look at that and it's, it's really fascinating. I'm learning a lot. I've gotten involved in a local project to recover the history of Eureka's Chinatown. It's called the Eureka Chinatown Project. Uh, and we've made great headway. It's, it's wonderful to be working with these activists and to be making change in my community as a historian doing historical research. And one particularly exciting aspect of it is connections between the Chinese community and Native American communities here. Uh, in particular, one man, Charlie Moon, uh, was famously able to remain here when everyone else was kicked out. And he wasn't the only one, uh, but like some of the other Chinese men who remained, he married a Cholula woman, and I think they had 11 kids. And so the Moon family, the descendants, they're a, a major force around here. Uh, so it's interesting to see those legacies and connections, and, and that's more or less what I'm working on these days. I've, I've definitely changed course, but uh, still very much interested in, in social and economic justice. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, that sounds wonderful. I think we uh, we all kind of looking forward to seeing uh, um, to seeing your work uh, in um, yeah on the Chinese community uh, in California. That sounds that sounds great. No, thank um, you. But um, um, yeah, I don't again. I don't want to take up uh, any more of your time. Thank you again so much for um, for talking uh, to us uh, for taking the time to talk to us about uh, about your wonderful book. Um, anyone that hasn't done so yet should definitely check it out. Uh, Red Silk, which again came out with Harvard in two thousand twenty. Um, yeah, so thanks again, Rob. Thank you so much for for taking the time. It's my pleasure, really. Thank you. All right, thanks. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye.